If uh, you're new to Sanctuary, I'm Father Paul, and I work here. <laughs> really, I, I promise I, I work here. Um, my family has been absent the past few weeks. We actually, if you've been paying attention, we announced that uh, starting July, we were going to go to one service, and then I just never saw you again. <laughs> Um, I hope it's been going well. It's, I'm glad you're all here. Um, my family, we've been, uh, again, we've been absent. We had some traveling that we were doing, and then we had traveling issues, and then we had health issues, and then all the things we did to kind of reconcile the health issues and the traveling issues left us in Indiana with a car that had a broken transmission. And... Um, I eventually, I told Bishop Ed, I was feeling a lot like Job, where it's just like one thing after another, after another. And he goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's like, but I bet Job wasn't losing his sons while he was like playing golf. I was like, yeah, yeah, you're, you're probably right. But we're so happy to be back. We missed you. We missed being uh, here with you on Sundays, worshiping with our sanctuary community. So we're glad to be back. You know, if you've ever had to stand and say anything about God. You know that there are times when you're reaching and you're not exactly sure what to say or maybe you're struggling to find enough to say. But then there are times when there's just so much that you wanna say and you don't really have enough time to say it. And that's where I'm finding myself today. There's so much I wanna say about these texts that we're engaging with, about what I think God is doing in our community and I don't really have all the time that I would like to take today. But there is something that I want to say about these texts. And it's not really about the text that we just heard. It's about another text that were offered to us. You know, if you've ever looked at how the lectionary gets prescribed to us, you have an Old Testament text that we're supposed to read for the day. And then we have a psalm that responds to it. And then we have a New Testament text, one of the epistles, something that Paul has written. And then we have the gospel. And all these texts are supposed to be talking to each other and giving us some kind of cohesive picture. Well, some Sundays, like today, you have all those texts laid out, and then you have these alternative texts. And the alternative texts are like, well, if you haven't really found anything to say just yet, um, maybe look over here. So I found myself in 2 Kings, and this is the alternative Old Testament text for today. It's 2 Kings chapter 4, and... In this chapter, we find a series of stories about this kind of odd character, this prophet Elisha. And if you've never read into the story of Elisha, um, you should maybe familiarize yourself. So, you know, at least when you see him, you can be like, oh, I've heard about you. But there are so many crazy things happening for Elisha. Let's look real quickly at just a couple of these stories that we find in 2 Kings chapter 4. The first is this story about a widow, and her husband's just died. She comes to the prophet Elisha, and she says, listen, we owe some money, and the debt collectors are coming for us. Help me. What do I do? And he says, well, what do you have? Like, what, what do you have sitting around in your house? And she goes, well, I've got, like, one jar of oil. That's what I have. And he says, okay, here's what you're going to do. You're going to go around to all your friends. You're going to go around to all your neighbors, your family, and you're going to borrow as many vessels as you can, as many other jars as you can find. So she goes and she gathers them up. She goes, okay, I've gotten everything I can get my hands on. And he says, go home, close the door, 
and start filling up those other vessels of oil with the oil that you have. And as the story goes, she's pouring oil and pouring oil and pouring oil. And when she fills the very last jar, the oil runs out. So she goes to Elisha and she tells him what happens. And he goes, okay, so now sell all of that, pay your debt collectors, pay your debts and what you owe, and then live off the rest of it. Which you have to imagine is like a pretty extravagant amount of money at that point, right? When it's like, you can pay all of your debts, your sons don't go into slavery, and now you have enough to live over for the rest of your life. I mean, pretty incredible. Amazing story. Wow, Elisha, tell us more. So the next story, <laughs> it's about another woman, but she's a wealthy woman. She's married, but she's also childless. And this woman, the text tells us, she actually spends time making space for Elisha whenever he happens to be traveling through. And so the text tells us that whenever he's traveling, she brings him into his home, she feeds him a meal, and then he goes on his way. But she convinces her husband to actually make a room for him, to actually make space for him so that he doesn't have to just kind of eat and run. But when he's traveling through, he can stop and spend the night and rest and then go on to where he's getting and so one day, Elisha's traveling through, he spends the night in their home, and he says to this woman, he goes, okay, what can I do for you? How can I help you? And he's like, can I say a word to the king? Can I say a word to the commander of the army? He's like, you know, let me scratch your back. And she goes, no, 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 I don't need anything. There's nothing that I need, nothing that you could give me. And he says, but you're childless. By the time I come back next year, you're gonna have a child. And her husband's old. And so of course she says, I love this line. She says, man of God, don't lead me on. <laughs> like, it's, it's too good to be true, right? So she says to him, don't lead me on, man of God. And then of course, like, we see where this is going. Next year, he comes through, here's this son. Well. Again, if you've spent any time in the Bible, you kind of know how a lot of these stories go. So she has the son, and when he's a young man, he's just a boy, he dies. So the woman rushes to Elisha, and she tells him what's happened, and Elisha sends his servant out ahead of himself and this woman. And he tells his servant, he said, take my staff, and when you get there, when you get to the dead boy, just lay the staff on his face. So he runs ahead of them, gets to their home, he finds the boy, takes the staff, and he lays it on his face. And nothing happens. Nothing happens. The boy doesn't get up. There's no life coming back to his body. And so Elisha's like, well, I've got one more idea. So I'm going to come there now. And he goes to the boy. And the text tells us that he just spreads his body out over this boy. And the way that the text says it, it says that his body is warmed and life comes back to him. If this doesn't frustrate you, you're not really paying attention. Like, we can all relate to the story of Elisha saying, well, go do this, and this is the moment, right? This is the thing that God's going to do. This is the breakthrough that you're going to have. And so 
This servant is obedient. The servant goes ahead. The servant lays the staff on his face, and then nothing happens. We can relate to that story because we do all of the right things. We do the things that the preacher tells us. We, do, we obey the Bible, and nothing happens for us. But then here's Elisha. He's like, well, I've got another idea. Like, that one didn't work. Let's try something different. If that's not frustrating to you, come on. So it just gets more bizarre. More and more bizarre, because immediately after that, there's this kind of meeting of the prophets. <laughs> I don't know what that means. Maybe they're like getting together and sharing stories about like, man, I tried this and it didn't work. But what we know is that they're all together and Elisha tells one of the servants, hey, let's make a stew. And so whoever this servant is that he told to make a stew has no idea what he's doing because the, the story goes, he actually puts things in the stew that are poisonous to them. And so one of, the, one of the prophets is eating, and this is the line that he yells out in front of everyone. Like, if you've ever been at a dinner party, this would be an amazing line. There's death in the pot, <laughs> is what he says. And then listen to this. So ridiculous. Elisha goes, put some flour in it. Now, I don't know a whole lot about stew, <laughs> I don't know a lot about poisonous gourds. I'm pretty sure flour doesn't really like neutralize the threat. It thickens it. Yeah. Okay. No. So finally we get to, and the flour fixes it, of course. Like, why wouldn't it? So finally... I mean, this is, this is all one chapter of this, of 2 Kings. If you've never, yeah, read 2 Kings. The last story that we find is this earlier echo of this feeding of the 5,000 story. That this man comes with an offering to Elisha. It's 20 loaves of bread, some fresh grain, and Elisha says to feed the people, and there's more than enough. If you're asking yourself, what is happening here? You're, you're not alone. But there's something about Elisha, that Elisha knew the world, and he knew God's activity in the world. It was something more than what we can see. In some way, Elisha chose to see the world, or believed that he could see the world as kind of enchanted space. If you've ever spent any time with fairy tales, you know that the enchanted forest is this place where all kinds of things can happen, right? I mean, animals start talking to you and trees have eyes and they can move and walk around. And that's, this is something of how Elisha saw the world. That we see a kind of general sense of possibilities, but Elisha sees something just a little extra. So that even when the things that he's trying don't work. It doesn't throw him. He's not scandalized by it. He's not afraid of it. He just goes, okay, let's move on to the next thing. What's the next possibility? For Elisha, he was aware of more possibilities than what just seems possible to you and to me. And we see this in the contrast of our gospel text, this feeding of the 5,000. Here's this, this character of Philip 
And he comes to Jesus, he responds to Jesus with a total lack of imagination. What are we going to do? I don't know. We don't have enough to actually take care of them. Maybe we should send them back to where they came from. So at least they could get something to eat, right? Here's Philip. And this is the kind of response that most of us would give. It's pragmatic. It's efficient. It accomplishes what it needs to accomplish. But it lacks, it lacks any sense of imagination for what's possible in the world. So it proves to us that we have to have our knowing. We have to have our understanding. We have to have our imagination altered. The epistle for today, New Testament text, is out of Ephesians 3. Let's take a quick look at it. I know we don't have a ton of time. But this is Paul, and this is his prayer for the Ephesians. He says, For this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom his whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray you, being rooted and established in love, that you may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work in us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout the generations forever and forever. Listen to those words. That you may have power to grasp. That you can know that his love surpasses knowledge. That we do all of this unto him who is able to do immeasurably more than we can ask or imagine to ask for. What Paul is suggesting is that there is more to this world and this life than just what you think or believe is possible. This is what marks the saints as different throughout the centuries. The saints are the ones who see the possibilities that we don't. Look at this story real quickly, if you have a, a slide for this one. This is uh, one of the sayings of the Desert Fathers. I love this. It says, Abelot went to Abba Joseph, and he said to him, Abba, as far as I can, I say my little office, I fast a little, I pray and meditate, I live in peace, and as far as I can, I purify my thoughts. What else can I do? He's done everything that's been asked of him. <laughs> Listen to this. The old man stood up and stretched his hands towards heaven. His fingers became like 10 lamps of fire. And he said to him, if you will, you can become all flame. What? Like, are you catching what's happening? He raises his hands and fire is shooting out of his fingers. And he says, if you will, you can become all flame. The saints see the world differently. They have a different imagination for what is possible in the world. I was born in the 1900s. It's going to be funny to my kids one day. <laughs> and something came over me a few weeks ago. I was on my way to meet Crystal for coffee. 
and something came over me. I thought, I've not listened. If you didn't know much about the 90s, there was a lot of interesting worship music. And so I got on Spotify and I was looking for like best of 90s worship music. And I'm driving and I'm on my way to go meet Crystal. And this song comes on. I'm not going to sing it. I'll spare you that. But you all know it. Lord, prepare me to be a sanctuary, pure and holy, tried and true. With thanksgiving, I'll be a living sanctuary for you. Love that song. Now, there's a lesser known verse that I had never heard before. Maybe you're familiar with it. It goes like this. It is you, Lord, who came to save the hearts and minds, I'm sorry, the hearts and souls of every man. It doesn't even rhyme. But think about what it's saying. Jesus comes to save our hearts and our souls. And I shut it off. And I thought, if that's all Jesus came to do, I don't want any part of it. I don't want any part of a Jesus whose only concern for us is what we think and what we believe, but doesn't actually care about our bodies, doesn't actually care about what we experience, doesn't actually care about the pain in the world and our responsibility to actually respond to that pain in ways that are faithful. This kind of thinking that Jesus comes to save our hearts and he comes to save our souls, it exposes the complete lack of imagination that we carry. This is the kind of thing that exposes those areas of our lives. And so we've convinced ourselves that because we don't experience these kind of Elisha moments, that we don't get to just throw flour in the poison pot and everything's going to be okay, or we don't just get to say to the woman who needs money, well, just go fill up a whole bunch of things of oil and everything's going to be fine for you. Because we don't experience those moments and we don't experience the miraculous, we just think that that kind of world is inaccessible to us. But it's not true. We've convinced ourselves that God must only be concerned with our hearts and with our souls, never mind our bodies. But what we see in the life of Jesus, in the life of the prophets, in the lives of the saints, is that God cares about the physical. God cares about our bodies, not just our thoughts and just our beliefs. I mean, of course, what we think and what we believe are important, and it matters. But if we divorce or if we separate our thoughts and our beliefs from the physical world, it's not some twisted version of holiness. It's heresy. It's Gnosticism. God cares about our bodies. God cares about what we believe and what we think because it informs the way that we live and act in the world. Now, this can just as easily go the other way. Remember 1 Corinthians 13 it tells us that we can speak in tongues, we can prophesy, we can have faith that moves mountains, we can give to the poor, but if we do all of these things, if we care for all the physical things in the right way, but we do it without love, it's just noise. It's all meaningless. And our lives aren't meant to just create noise in the world. We're supposed to be actually living in harmony, creating music with what the world is experiencing by the Spirit. Again, 
going back to the gospel text, isn't it interesting that both of these feeding stories today, Elisha's and Jesus, one of them takes an offering of bread, something that's freely given, and the other just takes what's available. That's another sermon. Now we've got to move. But again, thinking about Philip, Philip was just being pragmatic. Nothing wrong with Philip's answer. Like, how could we possibly make this happen? Let's send them home. Let them go get something to eat. They're tired. We're tired. Nothing wrong with this. But Jesus sees these people whom he loves and he cares for, and he has a new vision. He has a new imagination. Don't send them away. Let's keep them together. Why? Because Jesus loves them. He has compassion for them, and he wants to see something new broken open in them. We need that kind of imagination, an imagination that's animated by our love and by our empathy and by our compassion for others. Most of us, when we think about it, most of us only ever use our imagination for evil. We only ever use our imagination to sin. But what would our lives and our worlds look like if we directed our energies toward having a renewed kind of imagination? What kind of creative solutions would we create for all of the disparities and for all of the oppression and all the brokenness in the world if we could only see the world through the eyes of Jesus? Eyes of compassion, eyes of empathy, eyes of love. Two thoughts and I'll be done. One, what we see in a feeding story like this is that God cares not just about the physical, but about like the mundane physical. Not just about like the big healing moments, but just like the hunger pains that we experience. God cares about those things. I mean, if you are somebody whose job is to literally feed 5,000 people, or if you are a mom who has two kids and it just feels like they eat 5,000 times a day, that Jesus stops and tends to the hunger, the basic necessities of our bodies, and not just our souls, and not just our hearts. It means that our everyday stuff matters. It's so easy to let that slip away, especially in summer months, right? When we're all over the place, our schedules are crazy, we're doing all of these odd activities. God cares about your everyday. God sees the ways in which you care for people, care for yourself, and how that matters. Your work, whatever it is, is sacred. But as the people of God, we have a responsibility to pursue our work again with this kind of renewed imagination. To do the mundane things, but to do them in sacred ways. To do all the work of our lives as unto God as worship before God, trusting that even in those everyday, humdrum, mundane moments of our lives, because we're doing it before God, because we're doing it as unto worship to him, something new might just happen. Some kind of breakthrough may be possible for us when we're faithful in the everyday little humdrum moments 
of our lives. God is all about these ordinary sacred moments of our lives, if we only have eyes to see it. Jesus is the one who takes these ordinary gifts, this ordinary bread and makes it sacred for us. Ordinary wine and makes it sacred for us. Jesus is the one who wades into the ordinary waters and makes those waters sacred for us. Jesus shares ordinary meals with his friends and their eyes are open to see him for who he really is. And finally, when we get involved in this work of caring for others, the way that Jesus cares for us, not just being concerned about what other people think and what other people believe, but we actually care about their physical well-being. And listen, this is a diatribe, but we've got time for this one. When we only concern ourselves with what we think and what we believe, when those become the top tier priority for us, the danger that we all experience is that we have to find other people who think the same thoughts and believe the same things because now we have something to protect. Now we have something that needs to be defended. And the easiest way to defend those things is to find other people who think the same thoughts and believe the same things. And when we start to organize ourselves like that, when we start to create communities only around what we think and what we believe, here's what happens. We actually create a common identity that's more rooted in fear than it is in faith. And so we would become people who are closed off to the world. And we think that if other people are experiencing pain, if other people are experiencing brokenness in their lives, it must be because they don't think the right thoughts or believe the right things. Not understanding that brokenness just happens in the world. And our responsibility as the people of God is not to be the people who just huddle together and share all of our same thoughts and share all of our same beliefs, but we are to be people who are facing outward. We're people who see the brokenness in the world and don't just see it, but have the imagination to know how God wants us to react, how God wants us to respond. That's why we say we can't just be focused on what we think and what we believe. To be sure what those things that we think and believe matter. But it's not the core of what we do. We are not just spirits contained in these flesh bags. Our bodies and our souls make up our humanity. And when Jesus comes into the world, he is fully God, fully divine, but also fully human. Which means that the physical world is not an embarrassment for God. It's not a humiliation for God. It's not something that we're called to escape from. It's something that we're supposed to live into fully. Remember what the saints say, that the glory of God is humankind, mankind, being fully human, contemplating the face of God. Oftentimes the last part of that quote gets left out, that the glory of God is mankind fully alive, is what we say. We love that. It's not just about being fully alive. It's about being fully alive, contemplating the face of God. Because when we contemplate the face of God, we have a renewed imagination for who we are called to be and for what's going to be possible 
in the world. At the heart of the Eucharist, where all of this is leading today, at the heart of this is an invitation. Come. Come. It's a moment of hospitality. It is a moment of radical welcome. And we know that we are people who have been transformed by the Christ who promises to be present to us in this meal. Listen, when we come, this is not just about rote tradition. We come because Jesus has left us a promise at this meal, a promise that he is actually present to us. For those of you who have ever seen a wedding where there's a veil involved, we know that there's the veil and the veil's marching down the aisle, but we're more aware of the life that's animating that veil, of the woman behind the veil. That's what we experience when we come to this table, that we're aware of the bread, we're aware of the cup, but they're just veils. As the people of God, when we come to this meal, we are more aware of Christ who promises to be present to us behind that veil of the bread and the veil of the cup. And we are the people who've been transformed by that moment. And so then when we, the invited guests, the ones that Jesus makes welcome, when we begin to welcome other unexpected neighbors to the same meal at the same table, that's what this meal is about. That those of us who've been welcomed are now called to welcome others. Jesus is not just someone who exercises hospitality. He draws hospitality out from other people. This is part of the imagination that we need to see that we are not just people who are invited in, but because we are invited, we're called to invite others. By Jesus' welcome, by Jesus' welcome, he makes us capable of welcoming other people. When we come to this table, we are the guests of Jesus. We are here because he asks us to be here, because Jesus wants our company. We are welcomed and we welcome. We welcome God into our bodies and into our very lives, and we welcome our neighbor to pull up a chair next to us. Rowan Williams, you didn't think I'd get through a whole sermon without mentioning Rowan Williams. <laughs> He reminds us that this welcome is not just a personal habit of Jesus. It's not just like a feature of who Jesus is. That like, well, he was doing all these miracles, but good thing he was really nice and hospitable. This isn't a decorative addition to the main business of Jesus' ministry. A sort of pleasant extra is how Rowan Williams puts it. But welcome, hospitality, invitation, is the actual visible way in which Jesus engages in remaking a community. Welcome and hospitality and invitation is the doorway, is the path for having our imaginations renewed. So who are the people of God? They are the ones who accept Jesus's invitation not the ones who fulfill 
all of the cultic demands, not the ones who score highly on the scale of piety, but the ones who are willing and able and ready to hear Jesus say, aren't you going to ask me home? This meal that we come to, this invitation is the way that Jesus begins to recreate our imaginations and recreate community. Just like Tulsa. A way of laying the foundations for how we think, what it means to be the people of God in God's world. So friends, let's contend for renewed imaginations, to see the world as sacred, see the world as enchanted, a place of possibilities, a place where what we hope for the world might actually be accessible. Let's be people who do our work, even the most mundane work, as sacred work. And every time we come to this table, let's remember that we are invited. We are the welcomed guests. We are the ones that Jesus wants at the table. But always remembering there are other people who are invited that are not here. And so we make space and we make room and we extend that welcome and that hospitality and that invitation to all who would come and see and taste that God is good. Amen.